No matter how fashionable ripped jeans and other clothing rags have become, symmetry and beauty will never go out of style. As a former fashion editor, I've always had an eye for good design. God himself appreciates color and beauty. We know this by the descriptions in the Bible of Jerusalem's temple, the high priest's garments, and the new Jerusalem, gold, pearls, and precious jewels. God has made each one of us to be unique. While one person may appreciate refined clothing, others may be perfectly happy wearing bohemian attire. However, dressing for success spiritually is a very different story. There's a required uniform, as I'll explain. The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. The Passion Drama of Christ is one of the world's great spectacles, performed only once a decade in the German village of Oberammergau. The tour begins this September with two days in historic Prague, then on to Leipzig, the home of Bach. We'll walk through historic Wittenberg to learn about the Reformation fires set by Martin Luther, then on to Eisenach and the amazing castles of Bavaria, before ending with the historic highlight of Oberammergau. The week-long tour includes private coach travel, local guides, charming hotels with breakfast and dinner each night. For information, visit our events page on our website, exploits.tv. Shalom, I'm Christine Darig. In Jerusalem, it's fascinating to watch different religious attire all converging in one city. Highly religious people rubbing shoulders, as it were, with secular people. Jewish religious attire reflects biblical commandments and religious law regarding clothing and modesty. During morning synagogue services, Jewish men traditionally wear prayer shawls and cover their heads with kippot practices that even some liberal Jewish women are trying to emulate. Amongst Yemenite Jews, the wearing of such garments was not unique to prayer time alone, but prayer shawls were worn the entire day. Stringent Orthodox men often wear black suits reminiscent of Polish nobility back in the 18th century when Hasidic Judaism began. Jews of Eastern Europe adopted these fashions of the Polish nobility, the long black robe kaftan and fur hats, and curiously they imported this European style into the Near East. The prayer shawl called a talit has special knotted fringes attached to its four corners due to a commandment about fringes found in the Torah in Numbers chapter 15 to serve as visible reminders to do all the Lord's commandments. The tallit is typically all white or white with black stripes or with blue stripes. One explanation for the significance of the black stripes is that black symbolizes the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the exile of the Jews from the land of Israel. 
The blue and white stripes, on the other hand, are said to be in remembrance of the blue thread commanded in the Bible to be interwoven in the fringes, and also because of blue and white being associated with the modern state of Israel. The all-white shawl is customary amongst Sephardic communities, whereas among the Ashkenazi Jewish communities, the tendency has been towards wearing prayer shawls with black stripes. Actually, I've enjoyed how many Christians who care about our Hebraic roots have embraced certain aspects of Judaica, in particular the prayer shawls. Even women are wearing prayer shawls from Israel because of their beauty, endless variety, and symbolic nature regarding prayer. I wore this prayer shawl during Passover at an Israeli military base because I enjoyed its design of pomegranates. Within the past decades, as tourism to Israel has increased, there have been so many beautiful and colorful prayer shawls available. And of course, the fringes remind us of the healing of the woman in the New Testament who dared to touch the fringe of the Lord's garment. When Jesus, Yeshua is his Hebrew name, challenged two in the crowd pressing all around him had touched him, she came forward and confessed, and he told her that her faith had made her whole. This account is found in Matthew chapter 9, which tells us that the woman had been tormented by bleeding for 12 years, and she had spent all of her resources on doctors. So by stealth, because she was considered to be unclean, she came up behind Jesus and touched just the edge, the fringe of his garment. For she kept saying within herself, if I can only somehow make contact with just his garment, I will be healed. The little fringe dangling down became her point of contact. And Jesus turned and saw her saying, take heart, daughter, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that very moment. Hallelujah. Now, a talit katan, a smaller talit, is a man's undergarment, also with fringes. As for the Jewish women today, many Orthodox women don't wear trousers, and they dress very modestly, although how much of their ankles, legs, arms, and necklines are covered varies from community to community. Married, observant Jewish women are required to cover their hair with a scarf or a hat or sometimes with a wig to conform with religious law that married women should cover their hair. Muslim women also cover their hair and some even fully veil themselves, even in a modern state like Israel. And the dress of Orthodox and Catholic Christians in the religious orders is equally modest, except women's faces are not veiled. Mixed in with all of this religious garb are the secular people, some appearing half-clothed in the summertime. So Jerusalem is probably one of the most diverse of all cities when it comes to clothing. However, according to the Bible, there's actually a uniform, spiritually speaking, for believers, and it's described in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 6, as the armor of God, spiritual battle clothing. We're supposed to be outfitted for battle, for life, because life in this oftentimes dangerous and fragile world is a constant, indeed, a lifetime of spiritual struggle. 
In Ephesians 6:11, the Apostle Paul instructed us to put on the full spiritual armor that God has provided for us. So let's take a look at each invisible but vital piece. Each bit of the armor of God is essential. Any part that we might ignore will leave us vulnerable to ruthless powers of darkness. Listen to how Paul exhorted believers in Ephesians 6, starting with verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Stand, therefore, with the utility belt of truth buckled around your waist and having on the breastplate of righteousness. And wear as your shoes the readiness to announce the gospel, the good news of peace. Above all, Paul said, take the shield of faith so that you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So here in this passage, we have the Bible's call to arms. These six pieces of armor, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the belt of truth, gospel shoes, helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. These are the dress code of the spiritual believer. You see, Paul's reminding us of the dangers to which we're exposed all the time, and we need to be prepared to do combat. The powers of darkness hate believers and seek nothing less than our misery, destruction, and eternal ruin. The powers of darkness are artful enemies, invisible, working behind the scenes all the time. But thankfully, God has provided the spiritual armor for us. The weapons of our warfare are mighty through God to pull down strongholds, enabling believers to withstand and face the enemy in the Lord's might. The last piece of armor in Paul's list is the most vital, the sword of the Spirit. Because theologians point out that the sword of the Spirit, this word of God, is the only offensive weapon in the armor which enables us to attack our spiritual enemies. In Paul's day, the short two-edged Roman sword had conquered all the other weapons of the nations. The Roman sword became known as the sword that conquered the world. Used in close-range combat, its dual edges wreaked havoc and its tapered point could pierce through metal armor. So a Roman sword could help us to understand how to use the Word of God to win our spiritual battles. In fact, Hebrews 4.12 describes the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. In other words, when we read this book, it has a way of reading us and correcting us for our own good. When God's Word reveals something wrong in our character, we can use the spiritual weapon to cut off our wrong thoughts and actions. By his example, Jesus taught us how to use verses from the Bible to counter Satan's attacks. He quoted the word to the devil. We also must learn to live by and to quote every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, like Jesus did, as occasions arise. Now let's examine the defensive weapons in the armor of God. Number one, 
the breastplate of righteousness. And what is the breastplate of righteousness? How is the breastplate a defensive weapon? Well, I've lived for a long time amongst people who strive to keep God's laws and maintain their own levels of righteousness. But according to basic New Testament doctrine, when we put our faith in Jesus the Messiah, His perfect righteousness is imputed to us. His complete, perfect, whole righteousness is transferred to our paltry account in God's sight. That doesn't mean we can then live any old sloppy way that we choose, but it does mean that when God looks at us, He sees the impeccable righteousness of Messiah. He doesn't see our own imperfect, inadequate self-righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus is imputed to us by faith, and this makes us justified in the eyes of God and acceptable to Him. Isn't that marvelous? It's, to me, so liberating to know that God's standard of righteousness can be imputed to believers by faith. And this doctrine is not introduced as something new in the New Testament. It's foundational doctrine in the Hebrew Scriptures. Genesis 15, 6 declared that Abraham believed God and his faith was accounted to him as righteousness. So Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. So an important question is, are we trusting in our own self-righteousness for salvation or are we trusting in God's imputed righteousness? Which is better, ours or God's? Well, obviously God's righteousness is superior than anything that we would try to come up with ourselves. And His righteousness is imputed through Jesus. I've mentioned before on this program that I was well taught by my wonderful parents of blessed memory. Their grave marker is their testimony. Just three words from the New Testament. Christ our righteousness. Meaning that they went to their graves trusting in the righteousness of Jesus and not in their own good works for salvation. No matter how hard we've tried, we can never be assured that our righteousness will add up and make the mark. But Jesus' righteousness qualifies for God's approval. God accepted Jesus' sacrifice on the cross by raising Him from the dead, and then Jesus ascended to the right hand of God on high from where He will soon come again. Meanwhile, the breastplate of God is symbolic of the righteousness of Jesus that believers receive as a covering by faith. The Roman breastplate in the days of the Bible was made of molded metal to protect vital organs, especially the heart. And we have to guard our hearts continually because we're often attacked in our emotions. But our hearts are protected by the breastplate of righteousness, which is God's own righteousness, freely provided to everyone who believes. So please don't make the mistake of assuming that you can come up with your own righteousness in order to be justified in the eyes of God. You see, the Bible is brutally honest in informing us that all our righteous deeds in the sight of God amount to putrid, filthy rags. So I'd rather wear God's breastplate. I can't cover myself with a breastplate woven from filthy rags if we hope to get into heaven based on our own goodness or if we think we can stand on our own against Satan's wiles, we'll be tragically deceived and defeated. 
we require the righteousness provided by God's breastplate. This is because, as the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is fully seeking God. All the world is guilty before God. Why? Romans 3.23 explains, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's why the Bible teaches that you're deceived if you think your own works will suffice as a breastplate, a covering. A self-righteous person thinks that he or she can be justified on Judgment Day and make it into heaven based upon his own righteousness, his own good deeds, religious acts, charitable giving, sacrifices, and so forth. A self-righteous person makes a fatal assumption presuming upon God that they're good enough on their own. But God sees sin completely and in its entirety in a person's life. That's why the Apostle Paul, who was a great rabbi, who had lived a life of righteousness according to the Jewish law, he came to the conclusion in Philippians 3 that whatever things were gained to him, those things he counted as loss for the sake of Messiah. More than that, Paul said, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Messiah, Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. In other words, Paul said, everything else amounted to rubbish in order that he might gain the Messiah and be found in him, not having a righteousness of his own derived from the law, but the righteousness which comes as a gift from God through Messiah on the basis of faith. In this regard, 2 Corinthians 5.21 is an important verse, which says, God made Messiah, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's what theologians call the divine exchange. That's so important that I want to repeat that verse again. God made Messiah who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Theologians call this imputed righteousness. When we're clothed in the righteousness that belongs to God, he no longer sees our transgressions. We're covered, as it were, in the garment of his righteousness by faith. God gives believers the free gift of the righteousness of Christ. In other words, he clothes us in his own righteousness. And from the time when we're born again, for all eternity, God will only see the righteousness of Jesus when he looks upon us. So we don't have to trust in our own faulty, incomplete, tarnished merits. And how can we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So I want to ask you, have you put on the breastplate of righteousness? We need to put it on by faith, having received Jesus as our Savior, and never take it off. We wear it in the daytime, and we sleep in our spiritual armor. God's breastplate helps to protect our hearts from wrong attitudes. An insensitive, callous heart towards others is called in the Bible a hard heart. We all have many difficult, hard-hearted people to deal with frequently because we live in a fallen world. I read the other day at one of my favorite websites, Hebrew for Christians, that scar tissue surrounds the hearts of many wounded people. 
Scripture uses various images to picture this condition, calling it a heart of stone or a calloused, uncircumcised heart. If you're wounded and afraid to open your heart to others, it's time to petition God for healing. The Lord wants to have soft, malleable hearts subject to His touch and influence. We're exhorted to consider the biblical example of God as a potter who wants to work with soft, malleable clay. A hard-hearted person is closed-minded, assured of his own righteousness, unwilling to be wrong. When we find ourselves being rigid, inflexible, and intolerant, we're demonstrating hardness of heart. Do you recall in the book of Genesis how Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, hardened his heart? And the text says, even God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, there's a little bit of Pharaoh inside of all of us that doesn't want to obey God. And it's fascinating to me that when I'm preparing these programs, the Torah portion of the week usually applies to whatever I'm teaching because this Word of God is alive and living. And this week, the Torah portion from the book of Exodus concern the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Do you think it's fair that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh? Well, the Shemot Rabbah is a Jewish commentary on the book of Exodus, and it gives a very good explanation for this. The Holy One, blessed be He, gives someone a chance to repent, and not only one opportunity, but several opportunities, many once, twice, three times, and so forth. But then if the person still refuses to repent, God may lock the person's heart altogether, cutting off the possibility of repentance in the future. So that's a warning. There's a very real risk that anybody who chooses to be at war with God, who flatly refuses repeated appeals to repent, may become progressively strengthened in their attitude to defy God. But the Bible describes a heart that's shielded by the breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith. And it's a different heart attitude altogether. Psalm 28, 7 declares, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in Him, and I am helped. Therefore my heart greatly rejoices, and with my song will I praise Him. One of the best renditions of this verse is from the Book of Common Prayer. And it says, therefore, my heart dances for joy. I like that. So let's protect our hearts with the breastplate of God's righteousness and also with the shield of faith so our hearts can dance and will deflect the fiery darts of the enemy. Faith is so important all the time. Faith deflects the stones, the arrows, the missiles, what St. Paul called the fiery darts hurled at us. And so the believer's shield has to be the shield of faith, trust in God, belief that we're in God's battle, that when we're unjustly slandered, misrepresented, wounded, abandoned, struck down, we'll be able to say by faith, this battle is the Lord's. Or when we've done wrong and we're suffering the consequences, we can take the shield of faith to quench the fiery words of the accuser of the brethren, because we're going to ask the Lord for forgiveness, and His blood will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hallelujah.
Now let's consider the helmet of salvation. This helmet of salvation is just as important as the shield of faith and the breastplate because the helmet of salvation corresponds to protection of our minds. The helmet of salvation guards our head, the thinking part of our existence. The commentaries on this verse remind us that a blow to the head can knock out, confuse, and even paralyze a person, making us lose our head. We know, too, how in spiritual matters, fear and despair can assail a person's mind. And when we're assaulted by a spirit of fear, we can't even think clearly sometimes, and we can be in danger of losing hope. But the believer's helmet of salvation is vital, just like you wouldn't ride on a motorcycle without a helmet. This helmet of salvation represents the assurance of our salvation and protects us from deceptive thoughts. All of this armor, the armor of God, covers our front, but not necessarily our back, because the believer is supposed to face spiritual enemies and God himself promises to have our back. The Psalms say that he will be our rear guard. Verses like Isaiah 52:12 promise that we won't be running for our lives, for the Lord will go ahead of us and the God of Israel will protect us from behind as well. Hallelujah. It's just amazing and comforting to me, this dual idea that God has gone before believers, mapping the way out for us, but he also says, I've got your back. So we thank God for our heavenly spiritual armor. But now having said all of this, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul also reminds us that it's not enough to put on the armor of God. This supernatural equipment must also be accompanied by prayer and supplications, he goes on to say, praying at all seasons in the Spirit. You see, without constant prayer, we can't dress ourselves fully for the conflict. Without prayer, we're likely to stumble and not be on our feet to carry the gospel to the nations. All our plans and goals must be bathed in prayer and be spirit-led daily through prayer. Amen. In conclusion today, I'd like to review how we can receive all God has promised us according to the teachings of the Bible. Number one, we must believe God's word and pray in faith for God's will and purposes to be accomplished in our lives. Hebrews 11.6, one of my favorite verses, declares that without faith it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Secondly, we must speak words of faith and not words of doubt. Maintaining a positive attitude is so important. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say unto you, if you have faith and doubt not, you shall say to this mountain, Be removed and cast into the sea, and it shall be done. And all things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing, he said, you shall receive. But it's not enough to pray in faith and to speak in faith. The third thing we must do is we must act in faith. We are to be co-laborers with the Lord in this lifetime to do exploits, wearing our spiritual armor. And if we do our part, he will do his part, confirming his word with signs following. So let's stay in the word of God and he will direct our paths. 
I'd enjoy your comments about our subject today, and you can share any thoughts with me on the social media. We also publish a free ministry magazine called Exploits with articles about healing, deliverance, Bible prophecy, and end-time events. We also offer a 24-7 library of our former video teachings at our website, exploits.tv, where you can also read about our anointed prayer conferences, which are such adventures in Jerusalem. And we invite you to download our free Jerusalem Channel app from your app store. It has information about our videos, our eBooks, and also a Bible reading plan. Until next time, always contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm Christine Daring. Shalom and Maranatha.